Please be seated. Good evening to you. Let's turn to Isaiah chapter 9 tonight. Sunday night through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. And if you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles and just get their attention and they'll get a Bible into your hands tonight. How many of you remember that we've been studying Isaiah on Sunday night? (laughs) The theme of the book of Isaiah is salvation. And in fact, Isaiah's very name, it means the Lord is salvation. And that's the reason, as we saw this morning, that uh, there is so much about Jesus that is in the book. And as we mentioned this morning, Isaiah is known as the fifth gospel because it contains uh, probably the greatest revelation, though the whole book is a revelation of Jesus, greatest revelation of Jesus among the prophets. And so at the end of chapter 8 here, God has been speaking to specifically the northern kingdom of Israel uh, about the great judgment that was going to come upon them at the hands of the world-ruling empire at the time of Isaiah, an empire known as the Assyrian Empire. And because of the sin of uh, Israel, God was going to take and use the Assyrians to judge them and to take them into captivity as a means of chastening them uh, to bring them to an end of practicing the sin that they were practicing. And then in chapter 9, as is kind of the case with uh, the book of Isaiah, it's almost like the Holy Spirit and Isaiah, the Lord. They can only, uh, like a father, their heart toward their child when they're dealing about the, dealing with the great discipline and hardship that's going to come to their children because of their choices, because of their sin. You can only think about it so much. You have to think about it. You have to communicate it. You have to warn. But then your mind goes to another place, to better days on the other side of the discipline after they learn their lesson. And so this is why Isaiah so often deals with the near situation that he's dealing with in his time. And then the Holy Spirit takes him out to Jesus' first coming, sometimes to Jesus' second coming, and describing uh, the hope and the glory of the Messiah that's going to come uh, into the world. And, of course, you're never talking about uh, a better subject or a more um, inspiring subject than when the Bible talks about Jesus himself. And so uh, Isaiah writes, Nevertheless, uh, here it is, this doom and this judgment has been declared upon the northern kingdom of Israel. It's going to come, come at the hands of the Assyrians. And then the Lord says, nevertheless, he kind of stops and shifts gears. The gloom will not be upon her who is distressed as when he first uh, lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Those were northern tribes in Israel and afterward more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan in Galilee of the Gentiles. And so the northern kingdom of Israel uh, was known at the time of Isaiah, also at the time of Jesus, as uh, the northern section is known as Galilee, the Galilee region. And it's called Galilee of the Gentiles because the Jews, the religious Jews, tended to concentrate Um, most um, densely in the southern part of the land 
uh, what was at the time of Isaiah known as Judah because that's where Jerusalem was. That's where the worship of the Lord was centered. And then so there was a very heavily, heavy Gentile, non-Jew representation in the north. And it was true at Isaiah's time and true also at the time of Jesus. And he speaks of the fact that there was a coming day. The Assyrians, yes, they're going to come in. They're going to devastate the land. They're going to displace the Jews uh, out of the land. But the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Speaking of the future of the Galilee, of the northern kingdom of Israel, those who dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. And Matthew quotes this particular passage from Isaiah in Matthew chapter uh, 4 as Jesus fulfilling it. Jesus did not make Jerusalem, interestingly enough, when he came in his first coming, he did not make Jerusalem the center of his ministry. You would think that that's what he would do as the Son of God, but he didn't. He traveled to Jerusalem as was necessary as a Jew in order to be obedient to the scriptures that called upon Jewish men to go to Jerusalem as a part of keeping the three main feasts of the Jewish religious calendar. And, uh, and so he would make his way there. But the headquarters of his ministry was up in the north, up in the Galilee, and most uh, concentrated in the city of Capernaum. It's wonderful if you ever get to go to Israel. And, of course, what, how can you beat it? I love the north, the south, the east, and the west, you know. It's like picking your favorite pet. You love them all, you know. But up in the north, you go into that, the Galilee region. You're up in the area of Capernaum and to realize this is where he chose to do the greatest of his miracles, the most of his miracles there, and this is where he wanted to be. And because that was the headquarters of his ministry, he brought a light to the Galilee that they had never known before. Light is wonderful stuff. <laughs> it is fabulous stuff. And it is fabulous in the physical realm. Look at the, look at the benefit of light for us right now. If the lights went out, now we, not only could we not read, we couldn't guarantee our safety out of the room. About it being injured. Well, the same thing is true in the spiritual realm. Uh, all of us are going to end up uh, blinded and badly damaged in life without spiritual light, moral light. And so Jesus brought that into the world in his first coming, and it was concentrated as his ministry was there in the north uh, in uh, the Galilee. Then he moves on in verse 3. To talk, jumps into Jesus' second coming here, where he's going to bring a joy uh, to the land and to bring an end to the slavery and the oppression and the war that marked uh, the um, uh, Israel at that time and uh, has continued to mark much of the world since then. He said, You have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of the harvest. And so here's the joy we're going to experience, at, uh, the world will experience at Jesus' second coming that follows the seven-year great tribulation period. Remember, during that period, the Antichrist will... Um, he will go after anyone who does not take the mark of the beast, some kind of a mark either on a person's right hand or forehead. It was interesting. If you go to the same kind of websites that I go to, I don't go to like these crazy 
conspiracy, whatever, stuff like that. You don't have to anymore. You can just read the mainstream, uh, legitimate stuff and prophecies being fulfilled before our eyes and all. But had this article there that said um, seven things uh, that are uh, in your future, seven things that are going to be inside of you or whatever. And one of those things was this little tiny pellet now that... Uh, they can insert, of course, under the skin and under, you know, anywhere they want on the body. And now uh, the, apparently uh, the idea with our military is that that would be something that would be happening within the next couple of years as a means of identification of uh, soldiers that would be lost or what might happen on the battlefield and that kind of thing. And so, you know, all these things are coming uh, to pass. So whoever doesn't take the mark of the beast... Antichrist is going to go after him. His hatred is going to be most against the Jews. They're going to be scattered out of the land and all uh, over the world. And then here, though, when Jesus comes back at his second coming, all of that's going to be brought to an end. There's going to be the joy of both Jew and Gentile coming uh, back into Israel, into Jerusalem. Jesus will be center his reign there. And so you have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest. And so he describes the joy that people are going to feel when Jesus comes at his second coming, establishes his thousand-year reign at that time. Well, there's hardly a greater joy that a farmer feels than at the time of the harvest. So very appropriate right now, isn't it? Hope you got all the almonds in and everything by now and be very tardy. If your peaches are still out there, you're not a very good farmer, are you? But there's something wonderful about getting that in. It's come in. It's a time of celebration and uh, excitement. That, that's going to mark everybody's heart at the reign of Christ. And then he talks about the rejoicing that men do when they divide the spoil. In other words, they've been victorious in war and now able to s- divide the booty. When you go into war, you don't know, if the, heading into it, you don't know if you're going to win or lose, they're going to win or they're going to lose. So when you go through a battle and you're still alive, Live at the end of it in order to share the booty. There's a lot of joy related to that. So he's talking about these things that provoke the deepest joy. We're going to experience that level of joy all the time at Jesus' second coming as he rules with righteousness in the world. For you have broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. For every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle, uh, the garments rolled in blood will be used for uh, burning and fuel of fire. And so God's going to bring an end to all of that. Uh, the slavery, the oppression, the war that marks the, mark the world, marks the world today and, and uh, at the coming uh, of Jesus. And then verse, in verse 6 and verse 7, we have really one of the most beautiful and most um, treasured descriptions of Messiah, of Jesus in all of the Bible. We studied it at length uh, this morning, so I won't uh, th- this evening. If you're here and you weren't here this morning, you might just uh, stream it online or something. But here's this description then that Isaiah gives of the coming Messiah coming into the world gives this 740 years before Jesus was even born and he declares for unto us a child is born Messiah is going to come into the world not in a fiery chariot not as an angel he's going to come as a baby born into the world just as Jesus was unto us a son is given he will when he comes into the world don't be surprised when he declares himself to be 
the Son of God. So the vantage point of earth, a child born, the birth of Jesus from the vantage point of heaven was a son given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name or his nature will be called Wonderful, and he is Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, speaking of his power, Everlasting Father, the source of all good things that are eternal, uh, the Prince of Peace. These titles that he's uh, given, all of them mark Jesus' life and they will uh, forever and ever. And of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. And so now he moves to Jesus' second coming uh, upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform it. There's passages like this that created a little bit of a conflict for uh, the Jews, and it can for students of the Bible even today. So they would read these passages of the fact that God declared that when the Messiah came into the world, he would establish a kingdom. And that the kingdom would fill the whole earth and that there would be no end to that kingdom. And so Jesus comes into the world and he fulfills all of these various Old Testament prophecies in his first coming. But he doesn't fulfill the establishment of a kingdom. Throwing Rome out and peace being established all over the world and prosperity and blessing. And so it was confusing to, to people. Even the disciples, after Jesus had been raised from the dead immediately before his ascension, they asked him, will you at this time restore the kingdom to, to Israel? In other words, you can't ascend up into heaven because there's a whole bunch of prophecies that you haven't fulfilled yet. And what they did not recognize, and the problem is easily solved, and what is the truth concerning Christ, and that is that he will fulfill all of these prophecies in two comings. In his first coming, he came as the suffering saint, and in his second coming, he will come as the conquering king. And so he's going to establish this kingdom. There will be no end to it. You remember when Pilate... Jesus was before Pilate on the morning of Jesus' crucifixion. And he was, the accusation brought against him was that he was the king of the Jews. And Pilate is interrogating Jesus. There's back and forth going on. Pilate gets this sense that this is no ordinary person that he's in front of. In fact, Pilate begins to get this uneasy sense that Jesus is not on trial, but he is on trial on the basis of what he does with Jesus, which is true of every single person in this world. And he finally asked Jesus, he says, are you a king? Are you a king? And Jesus told him that he was a king, but that his, that his kingdom was not of this world. Otherwise, his disciples would rise up and fight. And he was talking about coming into the world in his first coming in order to establish a spiritual kingdom. And we're a part of that kingdom. There's an old saying, I read it years ago, and I love it. I quote it every once in a while, that the kingdom of God is an invisible kingdom that is made visible by the obedience of God's people. So every time we obey the Lord, contrary to all of this 
the way the world and the devil and the flesh operates. It's a flash before everyone that there's another kingdom in this world. And it flashes that before them. Jesus' kingdom is already established in a very real sense, but it's a spiritual kingdom. Later it will take a, 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 a further form of then establishing his rule upon the earth in which he will rule with a rod of iron. There'll be no unrighteousness. It will be perfect peace and, and blessing. But his kingdom exists. But all of this is ultimately fulfilled in two comings. In verse 8, he returns now to the coming judgment uh, that is going to be upon uh, Israel, and he describes what's going to happen to them when, is, when Assyria does invade them. The Lord sent a word against Jacob. It has fallen on Israel. All the people will know. Ephraim and the inhabitant of Samaria, who say in pride and arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen down, but we will rebuild kind of our cities and our walls with hewn stones. The sycamores are cut down, but we will replace them with cedars. So God had been chastening the northern kingdom of Israel for some time because of their sin. And the, whom the Lord loves, he chastens. So he was disciplining them. Uh, they had other nations that were invading them. They had a lot of problems going on. And it was all because of their rebellion against God and his commandments. And he was trying to get their attention to get them to repent. But they wouldn't do it. So here they've got all of these problems that are happening to them. And when God disciplined them and they would uh, incur damage as a result of it, they would simply say, well, we're wealthy enough, we're prosperous enough, we will rebuild our walls, we will rebuild our towns and our cities, and uh, the cities that were destroyed, the homes that were destroyed, the walls that were destroyed, they were bricks, and this destruction that has come our way just gives us a chance to rebuild them now with hewn stone. We'll build even better buildings, and what uh, was... Uh, built with sycamores, when all of that is destroyed, will replace those things with something better with cedar. And what they don't understand, and is important for us to understand as well, is that when God is chastening us, we don't have enough resources <laughs> to outlast his chastening. So he's disciplining them. He's trying to get their attention but they still have money, they still have power, they still have health, they still have energy, industry. They have a little bit of a form of government and organization. And they looked and they said, you haven't broken us yet. We'll go ahead and, and uh, ignore your chastening, your call to repentance. And uh, what you've meted out against us, we can not only recover it, but recover it in an even better fashion. And the Lord goes, oh no, you've stumped me. <laughs> No, God says, now, you thought that these other folks, you thought Damascus was difficult, you thought the Syrians were difficult, wait till you meet the Assyrians because they're going to wipe you out and they're going to displace you out of the land and uh, take you into other parts of the world. As soon as we recognize in our lives that God is disciplining us, and he will discipline us for willful disobedience against him, then the sooner we cry uncle and repent and turn back to him, the better. Because he will just raise the stakes and raise the stakes. He loves his children too much 
to allow us to ever be successful in sin and in rebellion. And he will do whatever it takes in order to to bring us back. You've heard the old story about um, New Testament kind of times where God will take a... uh, Jesus is spoken of as a shepherd, and shepherds in those days, Old Testament and New Testament, if a sheep was constantly wandering off and thus a bad influence among the other sheep and all, modeling something that's wrong and all, a danger to itself and others as well, the shepherd would break the leg of the sheep. So it couldn't wander off. And then he would hold the sheep until the leg mended, and then the sheep would learn its lesson and stay with the flock. And God is able to do that, not just to sheep, but to nations and also to individuals. We won't, we, none of us has the health or the money or the power or the anything to outlast God's discipline when he begins to bring it to bear to us. The solution to it is to repent. That may be a good word for somebody tonight. And so here they are in their pride and their arrogance. Hey, is that all you got, God? Oh, boy. Therefore, the Lord will set up the adversaries of reason against him and spur his enemies on, the Syrians before, the Philistines behind, and they shall devour Israel with an open mouth. Israel had so many enemies around it that wanted to destroy them. The only reason they were protected was God's protection. Do you believe there's a devil that wants to destroy you and a world, a whole world of people? Do you believe there's people in this world that hate your witness and your stand for Christ and would love nothing more to see you or me fall on our face before the world and ruin our testimony and then come in and destroy us afterwards? Oh, no, all that's going on. And, uh, and a failure to walk with the Lord, repent when he's disciplining us and he convicts us of sin. It just makes us vulnerable to our opposers. For all this, his anger, he's meeting out this judgment here. For all this that's, that's coming against Israel, his anger is not turned away. Not talking about his mercy, talking about his anger. The only thing that can turn away the righteous anger of God toward his children for their rebellion is repentance. They would not turn. And so, out of love, his hand is stretched out still. For the people do not turn to him who strikes them, nor do they seek the Lord of hosts. And therefore the Lord will cut off head and tail from Israel, palm branch and bulrush in one day. Judgment's going to come in, and the elder and the honorable, he is the head, and the prophet who speaks lies, he is the tail. God says, I'm going to bring in the Assyrians, and I'm going to wipe out your political leaders, and I'm going to wipe out your religious leaders. Because all of them were corrupted, the political leaders and the religious leaders of Israel. That's why the land was in the condition that it was in. That's who the people were following. It's so important for us to, as Christians, things are changing. I don't need to tell you this. I just say it because we all know it, and, and it applies to our, our culture. But I, I don't live in South America. I don't live in Europe. I don't live in Russia. I live in the United States of America. I minister in the United States of America. That's the context that I've got to apply the scriptures to. And things are changing very, very fast. I mean, some of you have read, somebody had forwarded to me, it was my first heads up related to it, but it's in the news a lot. 
or you have the lesbian mayor of, of uh, Houston uh, demanding the sermons of pastors within the city who opposed a policy that would have allowed, much like we've already got in the state of California, where whatever sex can use whatever locker room or whatever bathroom they want to use. You feel like a woman today? Then go use the women's restroom. If you're like a man today, go use the man's restroom uh, today. Or locker rooms. And just, okay, what planet am I on? All right? It's just like, how crazy can people be getting? And yet, that's it. And, the, and these pastors oppose this legislation. And so here is political power being used uh, to uh, bring them in line. It's an intimidation. It's bullying against the First Amendment right and the protection of pastors to speak and teach freely from the Bible. Well, that's, that, that's something that's been going on, but that's, that's going to get on steroids uh, in, in our lifetime as we wait for the Lord's return. So the whole political scene is, is turning. It's turning very secular, very unrighteous, very amoral and immoral. It's going on. And the problem is, is that we can't follow leaders and we can't follow um, that kind of thing. Anything that is contrary to the word of God, even if it matches the laws of man, we answer to someone that's higher than that. And we live to a higher law, the law of God. But it isn't just the secular world around us, but it's the religious world. Here were religious leaders that failed the nation at a time, not all of them, there was a remnant that continued to call the nation to repentance. There's always a remnant. Isn't it funny? It's kind of weird watching the moral decline of the nation that I'm living in and knowing that has to end in decline in every other way. And suddenly you realize, all right, now I feel what it was like to be in the Roman Empire or whatever other empire where not everybody was crazy, not everybody was following Nero or Caligula or whoever, all the excesses of these madmen. There were righteous people, but one day they got outnumbered and everything flipped and they were forced to watch uh, as Jeremiah was it, concerning uh, Israel and Judah, the, the, concerning Judah, the slow death of, of a nation. And we're kind of in that place apart from repentance and part, apart from a revival. And, and so to be in this place and to watch these kind of things happening and then to watch what's happening spiritually among those who claim to represent Christ. You've got great churches and people of God, wonderful, all over this nation, all over this city. It's fabulous. But caving is going on. It's interesting to read here in the last two or three weeks where the Pope caved in, the, in a, a historical position, um, a biblical position of even the Roman Catholic Church uh, related to homosexuality and uh, indicating that the church should be more open-minded about that particular sin. Now listen, if you're a homosexual um, and that's, uh, that's a tendency that you have, that's a temptation that you have, it's not the one that I have. Um, I have other temptations in my life. But your sin is no different from my sin. We all have to repent from our sin. Don't, don't get cornered in your mind and think that you're in some special category. You're not. We're all sinners that have to all repent of our sin in order to enjoy intimacy with God. And, and so here is the, the situation where um, 
this attempt to cave on that issue, move back from it, and then the cardinals pushed back related to it. And so there's this pressure, and even at one particular very, very um, hip, trendy, uh, popular, um, very successful in the world's use of the term, uh, kind of non-denominational denomination, it is a denomination that has now, and just in the last couple of weeks, decided that they're going to move back from uh, condemning homosexuality as sin. It's hurting uh, the bottom line. It's hurting what they consider to be trying to properly represent God within the culture. You know how I, I, I'm so glad that when I walked into a church in 1980, that guy up in front just taught me the word. He didn't cater to my sin. He didn't know what my sin was. But he just taught me the word and he told me how to get saved and to walk with God. It's not complicated. And I feel that the homosexual needs that as much as anybody. Then what they do with that is what they do with that. But they have a right to hear that and know that. Just like every sinner has a right to hear that and know that. Then I read here recently of that same denomination and as it's represented in the city of New York when they have water baptisms they have an open bar there what are we thinking about what are we going to do we're going to like have hashish pipes um, next or what what are you doing having an open bar at a water baptism what kind of signals are being sent what kind of leaders are in these positions? And then why are people following them? So it's just a sign of the the same things coming upon the northern kingdom of Israel. These are things that are increasing. They're not at that level yet, but they're increasing in the nation that we live in. And so here God takes and says, I condemn your political leaders. I condemn your religious leaders. I'm going to cut all of them off for the leaders of this people, cause them to err. And those who are led by them are destroyed. Therefore, the Lord will have no joy in their young men, nor have mercy in their uh, fatherless and widows. For everyone is a hypocrite and an evildoer, and for and every mouth speaks folly. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is still stretched uh, out. And so they continue. They fail to r- repent, and so he's going to continue his chastening. For the wicked, their wickedness burns as the fire. It shall burn the briars and thorns and kindle in the thickets of the forest. They shall mount up like rising smoke uh, through the wrath of the Lord of hosts. The land is burned up and the people shall be as fuel for the fire. No man can spare his brother. And so he likens wickedness. Uh, to something that can be burned and destroyed. Wickedness is destructive. It's its own fire. In, I don't care anything that God prohibits in his word and declares to be wickedness. If I embrace that, that will destroy my life. As the old saying goes, um, sin isn't bad because it's forbidden. It's forbidden because it's bad. And there's a big difference between the two. God doesn't come in and write a whole book about things that are forbidden us as Christians that we shouldn't engage in just because he says, you know, everyone ought to have a few hundred commandments as a part of their religious experience. He forbids only 
what is destructive in our life. And if we will not recognize it as such, then it will burn a great destruction in our lives. And God was warning of the northern kingdom of Israel concerning this. And he shall snatch on the right hand and be hungry. He shall devour on the left hand and not be satisfied. Every man shall eat the flesh of his own arm. Manasseh shall devour Ephraim and Ephraim Manasseh. Together they shall be against Judah. And so Ephraim and Manasseh were tribes in the northern. They they, uh, 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 made up They're different names basically for the northern kingdom of Israel. And then they turned on one another once things got really hard. And then ultimately they turned on Judah. All of these are Jews fighting with one another. Things got so bad that they stopped fighting against their enemies because they couldn't defeat them. And then they began to devour uh, one another. Maybe in our lifetimes. I don't, I don't say things to scare or to depress or anything like that. I'll get to hope in this particular comment. Look at how fragmented our nation is. And what in the world is going to happen when resources get scarce? when this nation really has to deal with that deficit, when China starts to call on that money and all of that begins to collapse and now there isn't money to get checks out in the mail to who knows who. And you remember, I mean, the earlier years, they talk about Cabbage Patch dolls when there was a shortage of them and what happened in the stores or Xbox or even in my lifetime, toilet paper, people brawling in stores in order to get paper towels and toilet paper. I mean, there's just a thin veneer of civilization over any group of human beings in this world, including the United States of America. And when it gets push comes to shove, people become, become savages Overnight, And that's what happened here. They thought they were so smart, rebelling against God. Who needs all of that? We can live our own way, not realizing they were turning the whole nation into something different and developing a group of savages that would turn on each other as soon as push came to shove on that. I'll tell you, it's very much on my heart. I think about the, where we are and I think about the institutions of God One of the institutions of God is government. Government has a responsibility to protect its citizens from attack from without and to protect its citizens from attack from within. Crime, military invasion. That's one of the responsibilities of, of government. And that when government fails in that very basic um call of God related to government as an institution as government is failing in our country increasingly on that level, then where do you go from there? You go to the other institutions. And what are some of the other institutions? Marriage, family, and church. And if things get worse in this country and things get savage, As a result of it, Jesus said at the last days for his return, he said perilous times will occur. 
In other words, problems will be so great in the world, there will be no human solution to it except for the return of the Lord. And so where do we go as we see our nation, maybe riots one group against another, just months or years in our future? We don't know. But where do we go? We develop a Christian militia, and we get the best armaments that we can get and uh, uh, the best... RPGs and the best guns and the most automatic of automatic weapons and we get ready to kill sinners if they come near us. Well, that's not what we do. Our weapons are truth and love. But we're going to need each other in a way that we've never needed each other before as Christians in this country. Make sure your marriage is strong. You can't control the strength of government beyond voting every two years or every four years. And if it fails, you fall back on what you can control. What's your marriage like? Invest in that marriage. Strengthen that marriage. You're going to need that marriage. You're going to need that husband. You're going to need that wife. Strengthen your family. And make it the strongest family that it can possibly be. And then we're going to need one another, the institution of the church, like never before. And the importance of as we see things becoming difficult more and more around us, if that is our portion, to look and say, I also want to have a part in making the church that I attend attend the part of the body of Christ that I'm a part of, the strongest and the healthiest and the most vibrant, the most loving, the most giving, the most biblical, the most other-centered place that it can possibly be because we're going to need these institutions and come to understand the importance of these institutions in a way that I think we've never been faced with before. And and here is Israel and and. Uh, begin to devour one another when things began to get hard, hard. And the Lord said, For all this his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. Woe, as he speaks about the injustice there in the land of Israel, woe to those who decree unrighteous decrees, who write misfortune which they have prescribed to rob the needy of justice and to take what is right from the poor of my people, the widows, that widows may be their prey and that they may rob the fatherless. What will you do in the day of punishment, in the desolation which will come from afar? So here is the, uh, uh, the corruption of the judicial system within the land. And they had set up laws and they used their power, their position their wealth to take advantage of the poor and of the powerless. God said, I noticed it. I'm going to bring judgment on you as a result of it. And then he says there in, at the end of verse 3, when all of this happens, the Assyrians invade, to whom will you flee for help? And where will you leave your glory? 
Without me, they shall bow down among the prisoners and they shall fall among the slain. When the poor and the powerless asked you for mercy and you gave them no place to turn, then you're going to come to learn what that feels like when the Assyrians come in and do the same thing to you because no amount of money or power is going to be able to protect you uh, from that. I'm going to give you a taste of your own medicine. And for all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. And then the Lord moves to speak through Isaiah, a woe upon Assyria. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger. And Assyria was God's instrument of his judgment upon uh, the northern kingdom of Israel. God was using as if this passage is a wonderful passage that uh, opens our eyes up to the sovereignty of God, how God is so often working, always working in human history, but in ways that we don't recognize. People in those days, they would have looked and said, all right, there's this major power called Assyria, and yes, we're bad, and we're not as good as we should be, and this and that, and it's just kind of the natural outworking of things. And what they didn't realize is that God had raised up Assyria, and he was going to use them as an instrument to chasten his people. And, and God doesn't just use other Christians uh, to chasten us, he'll, he'll use the world to do it. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, and the staff in whose hand is my indignation. I will send him against an ungodly nation and against the people of my wrath. I will give him charge to seize the spoil, to take the prey, and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. And so God declares that the reason that Assyria is going to be successful in their invasion, invasion and judgment of Israel was because God had called them to be his instrument of judgment. And yet Assyria doesn't know that they're being used by the God of the Bible. And that's why the word yet in verse 7, yet he does not mean so. He's ignorant that he's being used by God, nor does his heart think so. But it's in his heart to destroy, to cut off not a few nations. For he says, are not my princes altogether kings? Is not Kalno like uh, Karshemesh? Is not uh, Hamath like Arpad? Is not Samaria like Damascus? And so the cities that are listed here are listed in the, a direct line from Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, all the way uh, to Jerusalem, the capital of, uh, of Judah, in their invasion of the land. So he says, uh, I've defeated all of these cities as my hand is found the kingdoms of the idols whose carved images excelled those of Jerusalem and Samaria, as I have done to Samaria and to her idols, talking about her uh, destruction of the northern kingdom of Israel, shall I not also do to Jerusalem and her idols? So she looks at it. God's using her. She thinks it's all her power and her force. And it's like, I'm just conquering all of these countries and coming in and wiping out Israel, just like all of the other nations. And what I did to Israel, I will also do to Judah and to uh, Jerusalem. So she's ignorant of God's use of her, and the result is she's become very, very uh, arrogant as a result of it. And so God will ultimately judge Assyria. Therefore, it shall come to pass when the Lord has performed all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem that he will say, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the glory of his haughty looks. For he says, by my, the strength of my hand, 
I have done it, and by my wisdom, for I am prudent. Also, I have removed the boundaries of the people. I have robbed their treasuries. So I, got a little bit of an eye problem here, right? I have put down the inhabitants like a valiant man. My hand has found like a nest the riches of the people. And as one gathers eggs that are left, you find an empty nest. There's eggs in it. He says conquering these countries is as easy as taking eggs from a nest that uh, is uh, left vacant by the mother. I've gathered all the earth and there is no one who has who moved his wing or opened his mouth with even a peep. And so here's the full expression of his uh, Assyria's arrogance. And the Lord's reply to it is, shall the ox, the, the axe rather, boast against itself against him who chops with it? And he goes on from the axe to speak of the saw in the same way. Or shall the saw exalt itself against him who saws with it? And then he speaks of a rod, a shepherd's rod, as if a rod could wield itself against those who lift it up, or as if a staff could lift, uh, lift up as if it were not wood. And so here you've got the axe and a saw and a rod, and they uh, are sitting there, and all of them are have a something in common, and that is unless somebody picks them up and uses them, they just sit idle on a bench in the garage. They can't do anything in and of themselves. It is only because some master has picked those tools up and used them that they were able to accomplish anything. And God says the same thing is true of Assyria. The only reason they could do what they did was because he had given, he had taken them in his hand and he had uh, used them. And it's a beautiful ministry lesson also as well. God's use of us as his instruments in his hand, the only reason any kingdom good comes out of any of our lives is not, there's no glory for the instrument. The glory is all to the God who looks and says, I'm going to use this one here in this situation, and he takes us and he uses it. Imagine if you were um, in an uh, operating room and following the uh, heart surgery, this master heart surgeon performs this five-way bypass on someone, and they get everything sewn up, and the, the whole surgery is a success, and the scalpel stands up and starts taking bows. be the dumbest thing you ever uh, could see that scalpel would have sat on a tray someplace and never been used. All of the glory is owed to the surgeon. You could speak of the same thing of a piano. Piano just sits there. Not one note will ever come out of a piano unless some master sits down at that piano and then plays it. And the beauty that then comes out of that piano is owed not to the piano but to the master. It's true not only concerning God's use here of, of, of Assyria, but true in ministry as well. We should never take any glory away from him. If he did not choose to use us, we'd be sitting in the dark corner of some garage somewhere just hoping that he would use us. One of the greatest things in life is to be used by the Lord, isn't it? And he's all called us to, do, you know, to be used by him in some capacity or another. So... He uses in its amusing kind of terms the folly of the instrument ever 
taking itself seriously when God deserves all the glory behind it. Then in verse 16, uh, God speaks of their coming destruction. Therefore the Lord, the Lord of hosts, will send leanness upon the fat ones, and under his glory he will kindle a burning like the burning of a fire. So the light of Israel, that's a name for God, will be for a fire, and his holy one for a flame. It will burn and devour his thorns and his briars in one day. And it will consume the glory of his forest and his fruitful field, talking about the destruction that will then come to Assyria, both soul and body, and they shall be as when a sick man wastes away, when the rest of the trees uh, of his forest will be so few in number that a child may write them or number them. So the idea is God says, I'm going to bring a judgment on Assyria that is so great upon their invading force into the Middle East there in the area of of, uh, Israel and then down into Judah that what will be left of this great military force, a child would be able to number them. There'll be so few left. And we know historically that uh, a point came where the, uh, Assyria invaded the northern kingdom of Israel, completely uh, conquered it and displaced it. Um, the king of Assyria then continued the invasion down into Judah, the southern kingdom of Judah, uh, wreaked terrible destruction upon the land there as well, came to the city of Jerusalem, and God spoke to the people of Jerusalem that they would not be taken, not a single arrow would be shot into the city And on one night, an angel of the Lord was set forth, and he miraculously uh, destroyed 185,000 frontline Syrian troops and uh, Assyrian troops, and then they retreated then immediately out of the land and back into their own land. And ultimately, the Assyrian kingdom was uh, then displaced and replaced uh, by the Babylonians. And so God spoke of the judgment that was going to come, They took themselves too seriously. They were too cruel in their punishments, and ultimately they would be judged too. Just because God uses us in a disciplinary fashion in somebody else's life, it does not, we should never conclude that there isn't, uh, there, it must mean that I'm better than somebody else and that I don't have to be concerned about things that might be wrong in my life as well. Assyria didn't take that uh, seriously. And then God speaks about the ultimate return uh, to the land of a, a remnant that would be purified as a result of all of this. And it shall come to pass in that day that the remnant of Israel and such as have escaped of the house of Jacob will never again depend on him who defeated them. They'll be cured of, of their looking to other nations for, uh, for help and and bringing their sin into the land. But they will then depend on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. What, and again, we remember at this time in, in, the, in, in Judah, down in Jerusalem, the churches are full, the synagogue, I mean, the, the temple is full. There's all kinds of people coming. Religion is in absolute high gear, but it wasn't in truth. People love their sin, and then they just kind of uh, went to church, so to speak, just to kind of... Uh, because it was, there was some kind of social pressure related to it. God says, all that will go out. People will come to worship me, and they'll do it in truth. The remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For though 
Your people, O Israel, be as the sand of the sea. A remnant of them will return. The destruction decreed shall overflow with righteousness. For the Lord of hosts will make a determined end in the midst of the land. I love verse 23. That, that verse 23 will preach, I'll tell you. The Lord of hosts will make a determined end in the midst of all of the land. Isn't it wonderful to see determination as a character in somebody's life? They see something great that they want to do, and they are determined to accomplish that. And they won't stop until they do accomplish that. Wonderful to think about God, that he is determined to bring uh, to his end what he has uh, decided and promised to us. And, of course, what he has promised to us, uh, the New Testament says, being confident of this very thing, that he that has begun a good work in you uh, shall bring it to completion. And to think about that in terms of conforming us into the image of Christ, one day bringing us into the very presence of heaven, God is determined to do that. And what God has determined to do in judgment here and did do it, he is just as determined to do in keeping his promises to bless and to save us. Praise the Lord for his determined ends, but be on the right side of his determined end. And that means putting our faith in Christ. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion. Now he begins to speak about Assyria moving down into Judah, into Jer- toward Jerusalem. Zion speaks of Jerusalem. Do not be afraid of the Assyrian. He will strike you with a rod and lift up his staff against you in the manner of Egypt. For yet a very little while and the indignation will cease, as will my anger in their destruction. And so God says they're going to invade you and they're going to do a lot of damage here, but I'm going to take and and deal with them. And the Lord of hosts will stir up a scourge for him like the slaughter of Midian at the rock of Oreb, talking about the time of Gideon, um, as his rod on the sea, so he will lift it up in the manner of Egypt when God parted the Red Sea for the children of Israel to be able to make their exodus out of Egypt. God says, I'm going to do a, a, a comparable miracle in sparing uh, Jerusalem uh, of this uh, wrath of the Assyrians and it shall come to pass in that day that his burden will be taken away from your shoulder and his yoke from your neck and his yoke uh, and the yoke will be destroyed because of the anointing oil and so again God did in the supernatural destruction of their uh, army now in verse 28 um, it, here we have uh, th- this uh, description of the Assyrians invading in into the land toward Jerusalem, the panic that they put within the land. He has come to uh, Af. He has passed Migron at Michmash. He has attended to his equipment. They've gone along the ridge. They have come up lodging at Geba. All of these cities are in a line right toward uh, Jerusalem. And so you get this feel, okay, they've conquered this city. They've conquered this city. They conquered this city. And then they decided to make sure that their weapons were in good place to consider the invasion. And so it's like reading it, just coming, you know, one after the other, the other, the panic that it put into people's lives. Um, Rama is afraid, verse 29. Gibeah of Saul has fled. Lift up your voice, O daughter of Galim. 
cause it to be heard as far as Laish. O poor Anathoth, uh, Madmana has fled. The inhabitants of Gebim uh, seek refuge as yet he will see, remain at Nob that day. He will shake his fist at the mount of the daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. So here they are encamped all around Jerusalem. Behold, the Lord of hosts will lop off the bow with terror. Uh, those of high strat- stature will be hewn down and the haughty will be humbled. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with iron. The mighty one will fall. Uh, uh, the Lebanon will fall by the mighty one. And so God declares he's going to judge uh, Assyria and it's going to be as effortless for him to um, destroy them or wipe them out as taking off uh, the upper parts of, of a great uh, force. And again, as, we, as we've seen, he did so in supernaturally uh, delivering the city with the destruction of uh, the army. We'll stop there tonight because we come in chapter 11 here in the early part, um, this beautiful description of Jesus. And again, as we're going through this book, we want to make special note of that as we go through, and I don't want to um, uh, hurry through that. And then you've got that whole thing with a wolf dwelling with a lamb and the leopard and the young goat and all of that. That always gets animal lovers very excited. And... uh, Playing, nursing child, playing with a cobra's hole and all of that, and not in any danger when they do so, which means uh, my wife will have a new body by the time all of this happens. She does not like snakes or lizards or anything with skin like that. One time I had a pair of lizard skin boots. It was very hard for her. Um, If I had been any kind of husband, I would have gotten rid of them, but I didn't. So God, this happens when you get older, your feet get bigger, and I couldn't fit into them anymore. So he has his ways, right? The Assyrians, dumb husbands, whatever, it's all in his hands. Let's stand together. We'll have the worship team come forward.